defining moments. We've been in it for several weeks now. I think, I think I started in January. And we've looked over the shoulder of Jesus as he had some encounters with uh, different people in the first century. And in each of these encounters, Jesus brought to light either a new truth or reminded his audience of an old truth that they had neglected or overlooked or misunderstood. And in each of these encounters, as we've seen so far throughout this series, his audience had an opportunity to either embrace this truth and be changed by it, or to walk away from it and suffer the consequences and to continue to live in darkness. What happened to each of these characters we've looked at so far in each of these groups of people is something um, that might happen to us every single day of our lives because every once in a while, God who loves you and God who loves me and God uses people in our lives, or maybe he uses something that we hear or something that we read, or he brings a new truth to us and it comes front and center, or he brings an old truth and reminds us and it comes front and center in our lives, and he reveals something about himself, he reveals something about ourselves, he reveals something about the world that we live in, and in that moment, when truth comes front and center, we can either embrace what is often an uncomfortable truth, a truth that would cause us to think differently, a truth that would cause us to live differently, a truth that might cause us to have to reprioritize our lives. We can either embrace that truth and live in the light of what is true, or we can continue to live in darkness. And by darkness, I simply mean those times when we say, even though I know that's probably true, even though that's something that really ought to be a part of my life, even though I know that's undeniably true, I don't want to embrace that. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to face that because to face that and embrace that means I have to do something about it. I have to begin to live differently in this area of my life. I need to change some attitudes. I need to change the way I approach some things or some relationships. I need to change the way that I relate to people in my life. And this is threatening. It's uncomfortable comfortable. It's like walking out into the bright sun after being in a dark room, and I can't stay here. And so we retreat to the darkness that we're accustomed to, the darkness where our eyes have already adjusted. Today's encounter with Jesus, it's one of those really familiar stories in the Gospels, uh, but it's, it's one I haven't, uh, I haven't spoken on in years, and I want to go back to this. I've heard it many times, and you have too. If you, how many of you grew up going to Sunday school or maybe VBS in the summertime? You've heard this story when, I, when we go there and we open up our Bible. You heard it in Sunday school. You heard it in VBS. Uh, you, you, you're going to envision the flannel graph. You know, just do this if you know what I'm talking about, flannel graph. And if you don't know, don't even bother looking it up because it'll mess with you. But uh, I'm always intrigued by Jesus' response to the felt needs of people in his day. Um, and and the felt need of this person in this particular story, and the blinding, uncomfortable truth. And for some of us, this is a review, okay? Because if you put your hands up and you, you were a Sunday school kid, uh, you've heard this story. So for some of you, it's going to be brand new. This blinding, uncomfortable truth is that oftentimes, our felt need is not our greatest need. Oftentimes, our pressing need is not our primary need. Oftentimes, the things we want the most is not the thing we need the most. And because of the world we live in and because of the lives that we tend to live, most of the time we lose sight of what our real need is. And we come to God with our pressing need, and he doesn't always answer our pressing needs, and we're disappointed. And we throw up our hands and say, well, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering this prayer? What's with you? What kind of God are you? What's wrong with you? And the answer to that question is found in this story. 
So if you have your Bible with you, if you brought your your Bible app on your device, let's go to Mark chapter 2, the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. It's the second book in the New Testament. There are four stories of Jesus in the New Testament. We know them as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by four different people from four different perspectives. Mark is the shortest, so if you'd like to read the short version of Jesus' life and ministry, Mark's the book to read. We're going to be in the second chapter of the book of Mark. And Jesus has just launched his ministry, and he's done a few miracles, and he's healed a few people, and word is beginning to spread, and he's given a few sermons, and people are intrigued by him. And in this particular story, Jesus comes home to Galilee, uh, the area where he grew up. He's a, little bit, he's a little bit north of his hometown of Nazareth, and he's in a little town called Capernaum. And he's gone into someone's home to teach, and everyone's heard that he's there. And they come and they fill up this house and they, then they can't get in the house. And so they've gathered all around the house. And I imagine you could hear a pin drop as they tried to hear every word that Jesus had to say. That's where the story begins. In Mark chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. We'll put these verses on the screen and uh, see where we, where we go. Verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. This is where the plot thickens, verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they couldn't get get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat that the man was lying on. So you get the picture. Get all these people. I don't know, maybe 100 people. I mean, picture this happening at your house. All right? How many people would it take for there to have to be people standing outside. So we tend to, oh, it's thousands of people. It might have been 100 people. Maybe, maybe hundreds, I don't know. We have no idea. A lot of people. The whole town has come to see Jesus and to hear him speak. And maybe to see some of his magic, because the word had spread. You know, these miracles that people were talking about. So here are these four guys, and they heard that the miracle workers come into town, and they missed the first wave of the crowd, and probably because they realized what was happening, so they got to go find their friend and get to his place and get and bring him on a stretcher, basically, and there's four of them, and they're like, hey, we got good news for you. Jesus is coming back home, and he's the miracle worker, and we never knew that before, but now we know, and we've heard what he can do, and we think that if we can get you to him, you could be healed, and you wouldn't have to lay on this mat and beg for the rest of your life. So the four of them they lift this guy up in his mat, and they come to the house, and they're, they get there, and they're disappointed because they couldn't get anywhere close to Jesus. They're not there for the sermon. They're not there to stand outside and listen. They wanted to get to Jesus. There are other sick people there, and everybody's listening, and they're like, shh, 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 shh we're trying to listen. And somehow, they get this idea, and they get access to the roof. And the roof of these homes, uh, don't think in terms of your roof, I hope, but they would put beams across the tops of the walls, and then they would take mud and dried branches, and they would make this kind of crude cement, and they'd lay that across the beams. And these, these roofs didn't have a lifetime guarantee. They didn't even have a 15-year guarantee. They were generally replaced every year. In the fall, they removed the whole roof, and they would put on a brand-new roof for the coming winter. So it wasn't like someone digging a hole in your roof. But at the same time, it wasn't something that you wanted done unless you needed to have it done, all right? So the Bible says they dug through the roof, and they had to dig through the mud and the branches and all this stuff. You get the picture. Jesus is inside the house, and we have no idea how big the house was, but the houses were not very big. We have no idea how high the ceiling was, but suddenly as Jesus is teaching, put yourself there, and people are being really quiet because there's so many of them, they're struggling to hear, and all of a sudden they hear this <coughs> scratching noise on the roof of the house. 
And they're thinking, the squirrels are at it again. And then later, then a few minutes later, like, no, no, those are raccoons. And then they hear pounding, and now they're really confused as to what's going on. And now they hear voices. And before long, they see this little beam of light. And there was stuff starting to fall from the ceiling and branches and dirt and dust. And people are looking up, and suddenly there is a hole. There's a legitimate hole in their roof. And sunlight is shining through the roof. And Jesus looks up. Sermon's over at this point. I would love to do... uh, a visual aid on this would be really cool, but it would be very costly at the same time. Because can you imagine that happening in this room? I would, it would be pointless to continue teaching because everybody's looking up and the hole gets bigger and be, bigger and bigger. And then there are faces peering down on Jesus. They're looking over the hole. And he's, he's looking up and the homeowner's in the back trying to figure out what is happening to his house. And the hole just keeps getting bigger. Imagine how big a hole you have to make to lower someone down on a mat on, by the four corners, you know? And this is a huge hole. And then all of a sudden, something blocks the sunlight. And down comes this mat. And from Jesus' perspective, and from these, those in the room, they can see that this mat has what looks like a body on it. Imagine, another perspective, if you're the paralyzed guy. All you can see as you're lying on your mat is the faces of your friends with the sunlight behind them and this, through this massive hole that they've created in some stranger's roof. You can't see Jesus. You don't know what's happening below you. You can't see the people in the room. You have no idea what's going on. And slowly, slowly, you know, one corner and then another, and it's uneven. This is not a Coast Guard rescue, okay? It's like uneven, and then the guy's going to fall off the mat, and then they adjust it, and then they're, you know, it's, and he almost falls off, and all of a sudden, this guy is coming down through the roof into the crowd, and he's eye level with Jesus. Picture it, just right here. And he turns his head, and there's Jesus. And he's looking up through the hole in the roof at the faces of his friends, and then it gets quiet, except maybe the homeowner wondering out loud what in the world is happening to his house and who's going to pay for this and we need some volunteers to stay after to clean up and maybe fix my roof, you know. And at this point, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but I, can, I think Jesus probably just kind of maybe burst out laughing. Because can you imagine? I, I'm for sure there's this long pause and you can feel the tension in the air. And I think Jesus can see the humor in all this. I would, and maybe he just bursts out laughing. I mean... His sermons have been completely derailed. There's a huge hole in the roof. You've got four guys watching from up there, peering down through the hole. And here's this guy who can't move, and he's totally surrounded by strangers, suspended on his mat. And everybody in the room and everybody in all the other rooms and everybody standing outside who's heard what's happened, (coughs) they know exactly why these four guys brought this friend to Jesus, right? Right? It's, obviously they're, it's obvious that they're not there for the sermon. They're not there to take some notes and, uh, and you know, kind of nod along with the sermon. And They're not there for the insight. They're there for a specific purpose. And it's obvious to everybody what this guy's need is. I mean, look, he's paralyzed. It's obvious to everybody why his friends have gone to such great lengths to get him to Jesus. And that's when Jesus takes the opportunity to shine a penetrating and difficult light on the situation. And this truth comes from out of the blue and you don't expect it and it casts a whole new level of understanding over our lives and our prayers and our needs and our concerns. And then Jesus says this unusual thing, verse 4. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, stop for a second, because this isn't a trick question, but 
What do you think? Who, whose faith is their faith? It's plural. It says when Jesus saw their faith, who does their faith refer to? Who do you think? The four friends. Had nothing to do with the guy who's hanging there on his mat in front of Jesus. Maybe he's on the ground by now. But he looked up, and here are these four guys, and he's like, and they're like, no matter what it takes, if we can just get the guy to Jesus, we know that he's going to walk out of here. We don't have to worry about bringing him back up through this hole because he's going to take his mat and walk out. And he'll probably come up here and help us fix this hole when it's all said and done after Jesus heals him. We can just, we can just count on that. He's walking out of here. Verse 5. Oh, no, you're still in verse 4. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, I guess that's verse 5, sorry. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow, thanks, Jesus. That's great. Thank you very much for that. That's exactly, that's great. Big hand for the teacher. He's given a big announcement. Uh, Your sins are forgiven. Great. Hey, Jesus, you may be the only one in this room who hasn't figured out why this guy is here. You, you, You may be the only one who doesn't get this. It's so obvious, Jesus. And I think the guys up, up on the roof are like, we, we didn't bring him here to get his sins forgiven. Okay, Jesus, you, you know what his need is, right? I mean, everybody else in the room and everybody outside who saw us bring him up here and struggle up the stairs and tear the roof apart and lower him down, they know why he's here. He's paralyzed. We went to all the trouble so that you could heal him, not so that you could forgive his sins. What's that about? Are you not clued in, Jesus, to what everybody else is obviously clued into? We're not here for forgiveness. We're here for a miracle. We're here to see this man walk away. And Jesus is almost insensitive, really. He's brushing dirt and branches and and dust off himself. And he kneels down and he looks the guy in the eyes and he's like, good news. I've seen their faith. I see your hope. Here's the good news. Your sins are forgiven. I think it was a huge letdown. I mean, that's what the audience is thinking. I guarantee the guys on the roof are like, what? We didn't go to all this trouble so he could forgive his sins. What is happening? And the audience is like, bummer, I thought we were about to see this really cool miracle. And the sick people in kind of in the back of the crowd are thinking, all right, we're about to get this started, let's, but we didn't come for a sermon either. Let's get the healing going. And then there's another group of people who always ha- just were always around whatever Jesus was doing, the religious leaders. And as soon as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, not, are, not only are they astounded by his incredible insensitivity, but now they're blown away by the fact that a man would announce that another man's sins are forgiven. Look what happens, verse 6. Now some teachers of the law, which meant they knew the law backward and forward, they are the experts in the law, they are the people who explained everybody else how to get your sins forgiven. You can't get your sins forgiven without these guys explaining it to you. These are the experts in how to be forgiven. The teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, by the way, you should never do that around Jesus. Never think to yourself around Jesus, because we've established that on several occasions already. The teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? It's like, whoa, you can't announce that this guy's sins are forgiven. Have you not been paying attention? Getting your sins forgiven is complicated. Getting your sins forgiven is expensive. It's, a, it's, an, it's an involved process, and you've got to wait in line to get your sins forgiven. I mean, first of all, you've got to buy a sheep. And not just any sheep. You've got to buy a spotless sheep. And if you don't have much money, you can get a pigeon. 
But if you show up at the temple with a pigeon, then everyone's going to know you don't have much money. So, you know, whatever. Uh, and, or you're trying to get some cheap forgiveness. So you've got to go buy an animal. You've got to go to the temple. And you, if you don't live close to the temple, then you've got to pack your bags. And you're, you're going to make a journey to the temple. And then you have to make an appointment. And you've got to stand in a long line and consult with the religious leaders so you can figure out what exactly kind of sacrifice has to happen for your particular sin according to our 618 different laws and rules that we have. Because only a, only a handful of experts that can facilitate the forgiveness of sins. And then you've got to wait. And you might have to wait all day. And we've got to make sure that you're ceremonially clean because we've got a lot of questions to ask you. You've got to jump through a lot of hoops here. And you finally get your turn. And the priest takes your perfect animal, your sheep or your pigeon, and he slaughters it. And it's bloody and gross. And he gets blood all over the ground and all over himself. And he says some things. And then your sins are forgiven. But it's only temporary. Because a little bit later, you've got to go buy yourself another lamb or another pigeon and go through, through the same thing over and over and over throughout your life. So forgiveness is complicated. Forgiveness is costly. And we are teachers of the law, which means you've got to kind of come through us so you make sure you make the right kind of sacrifice for your particular sin. <clears throat> oh, and I think they're sitting there thinking the fact that people sin is, you know, it's cool because it gives us job security, you know, because you've got to know the law in order to be forgiven. And so that's what we do. We are the experts in the law. So listen, you can't, I don't know who you are, Jesus, but you can't just announce to some stranger that you don't know that your sins are forgiven. It's a lot more involved than that. Besides that, there's more. Verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't forgive sins that weren't committed against you. This guy lying on the floor, Jesus, has somehow offended you. Then I guess relationally, you could say, I forgive you for what you did to me. But you just can't blanket forgive the sins that he's committed against God and against other people. That's not yours to do. That's not yours to give. And the only person that can forgive the sins that he's committed against God is God. The only person who can forgive sins that he's committed against other people are other people and God. So who do you think you are? Do you think you're God? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The very fact that you would say in front of a bunch of people, your sins are forgiven, means you are equating yourself with God. Jesus, who do you think you are? That all ran through their minds so quickly. So you got one group that's disappointed. They thought they were about to see a miracle. you got this guy on the floor lying there thinking, you guys are going to have to hoist me up because we went through all this stuff and my sins are forgiven. Woo! Now let's leave. And the crowd's disappointed. And the religious teachers, the, uh, yeah, the religious teachers and the experts in the law are angry because he's claimed something that only God could claim. And again, I think this is just brilliant. Nobody could have made this up because it, Jesus has the undivided attention of all of the audiences in the room. The paralyzed guy who's wondering what's next. The friends who are up on the roof, kind of looking down, and they're disappointed. The crowd who wanted to see a miracle. The religious leaders who are thinking, you know, you've really crossed the line this time. You, you can imagine the drama. He's got everybody's attention. And there stands Jesus with dust and dirt all over himself. And everybody's looking at him, wondering what he's going to do next. Verse 8. <clears throat> Immediately. I love that. Because Jesus didn't even let them ask a question. 
Because if they asked, then it kind of took away his opportunity to let him know or let them know that he knew what they were thinking. And he loved to do that. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? He looks right at these religious guys and he's like, I know what you're thinking. Why are you thinking these things? And they look at each other and like, again, we knew he would do this. We've seen him do this before. I don't know how he does this. Why are you thinking these things? Check this out. This is unbelievable. Verse 9. Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? See, guys, I'm not so out of touch with reality as to not know why he's here. I get it. I know why his friends did what they did. I know what the crowd is expecting. I know what his felt need is. I know what's urgent to him. I know what's pressing. I know why he's here. I can see the pain. I'm not blind to the situation. And I have forgiven his sins. So let me ask you a question, you experts in the law, you religious leaders. Which is easier to say, I forgive you? Which didn't seem to impress anybody. Nobody celebrated that. In fact, I... I said, your sins are forgiven, and everybody seems to be disappointed. But what's easier to say, I forgive you, or pick up your mat and walk out of this room? Which is easier to say? Because I know what you're thinking. I know why you're here. I know something that you don't know that his pressing need to be healed is not his primary need. That what's urgent to him is not really what's most important. That his felt need is not really his deepest need. And what he wants the most isn't really what he needs the most. And I've addressed the primary need. I've addressed what's really most important. I've I've addressed his deepest need, and nobody seems to appreciate that because you're blind to a very, very important truth, and here it comes. Now, see, I can relate to this totally because when I was born into this world, just like you, my priorities that came with me were something like this. You know what I want most? I want health. Don't you? I want to live long. I want to live a long, long time. I want a quality of life. I want everything to work the whole time. And then when I'm like 95 years old, I want to die in my sleep painlessly. That's what I want. Okay? You? Yeah? I want to wake up in heaven and be like, whoa, perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah. It's like we say, God, you got your pen there. You can, I want to give you my to-do list. Number one, God, my health. If you could make sure that's good. If I'm really, really healthy... Um, and then I, I uh, want to have a lot of money and a lot of stuff because I have those things. Then I got a lot of options, uh, and that's good, God. And if I can get all that in order, I'd really like for people to know who I am and to recognize me for the things that I've accomplished and because I'm just a great person, and I think it would be nice if they would notice that. Oh, and dear Heavenly Father, here's my prayer request. Health, prosperity, companionship, and fame. That's all I want. That's all I'm asking from you. Those are my deepest needs. These are my pressing needs. These are, the, these are the things that I need the most. These are... Here's the thing. <clears throat> there are times when the prosperity thing is urgent because of things you got going on and things that you... Maybe something you... Maybe something you inherited. The health thing is huge. Maybe because of your insecurities, the recognition thing is huge. It's like you get on your knees and we fast and we pray and we beg and we ask God either for health or someone else's health. And 
Maybe you've been through a divorce or you were a kid when your parents divorced or maybe you've never married and you just get lonely and the need for companionship is huge and, and, the, and you're just like, send me somebody. Ah, it's my need. It's my greatest need, God. I need companionship. And, you know, God, help me to have companionship. Oh, and then while you're at it, help me to have success in everything that I do because I want to be recognized for what I do. And, and God, that, if you want to make me famous even, that'd be cool. With, I, I'll talk about you all the time. Every talk show, I'll mention your name. If you make me prosperous, I'll, I'll give you some money. Uh, and we bribe and we deal with God about these things. You know what never shows up on our list? Our spiritual condition. Like forgiveness? I mean, what? I mean, God, no. Do I need to talk to God about that? He knows that. In fact, you know it's true. Some of you don't even... It could be that some of you don't even think you need forgiveness because it's not a felt need. You don't wake up thinking that, feeling that. You don't wake up in the morning like, oh, I need forgiveness today because some of us don't even think we've ever sinned and you just kind of make mis- some mistakes. Like God doesn't need to forgive me for my mistakes. It's just mistakes. I'm human. You know, well, okay, okay. Back in, uh, I think it was 89, there was that time that I did that thing that time, you, you know, and um, other than that, I'm a pretty good person. I'm nearly perfect, actually. So, um, isn't it true that forgiveness is not urgent? It's not a felt need. It's, it isn't considered a primary need. It doesn't even show up on our list when we come to God with the things we need. And that's Jesus' point in this encounter. He had everybody's attention because everybody wants to see a miracle. This guy. So this guy could get his health back so he could get on with pursuing success and companionship and fame and all that. Because if he could somehow just have his health, that was a missing component, he would be sure to have all the other things. And nobody ever thought about this. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's disappointed because that's not what they came for. And let me just be honest because I'm with you on this one. This isn't high on any of our lists. And you know why? Because we don't see as God sees. We just don't see as God sees. And when we begin to see as God sees, as we begin to gain some sort of like eternal perspective, forgiveness not only makes it to the list, it goes to the top of the list. But until we see as God sees, it won't even get on the list because it isn't urgent. We don't feel it and it doesn't seem to be all that important. And it's something that has to do with, you know, after my health is gone and you're on your way out anyway, then we'll talk about this. In Jesus, in this incredible encounter where he's got everybody's undivided attention. So no, when you see like I see, let me lay a little truth on you. <coughs> it's, going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable. It might be convicting. It'll cause you to want to run back inside into the darkness where your eyes have already adjusted. And this, this truth will cause you to kind of shift your thinking should you choose to, choose to embrace it. Because here it is. When you begin to see as I see, Jesus, you'll realize that your primary need is forgiveness. The most urgent thing is forgiveness. What you need most, what you need at the deepest level is forgiveness. And as a result of that, connection with your Heavenly Father. For everything that stands between you and God to be removed so that you can connect with Him, not simply in this life, but in the life to come. The story goes on. This next part is really a message in itself. Verse 9. I think we've already read this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, you're the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But, and they're thinking, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to get up and walk, because anybody can say your sins are forgiven. But the problem with saying your sins are forgiven is we don't know if they are or not. I mean, anybody can say that, 
but how do we know that they're really forgiven? Because Jesus isn't the only person who can forgive God, isn't that, or can forgive sins, isn't that God? And the only person who, who has, here's the word, authority to say to another person, your sins are forgiven, everything that stands between you and God is removed, you can have a relationship with a holy God and know that your eternity is secure. The only person who has authority to make that statement is God, and they knew that, and Jesus knew that, and Jesus knew that they knew that. Verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, just stop for a second. This is huge because we've got to talk about this for a second. So that you, the eyewitnesses, will know that I have the authority. Why do you use the word authority? Listen carefully. For him to say to this man or for him to say to you, for him to say to this man or to say it to me, your sins are forgiven means that he has the authority to remove sins and the stain of sin, but he also has the authority over the eternal consequence of sin because the eternal consequence of sin is eternal death. The consequence of sin is eternal separation from the Father. And if somebody's going to say to me, Todd, your sins are forgiven, then what I understand is you not only have the authority to remove the stain of sin, and you have the authority to remove the consequence of sin. And to be honest, that's what I'm really interested in. I want the eternal consequence removed. I don't want to have to pay in eternity for what I've done in this life. So if Jesus is saying, so that you'll know that I have authority to forgive sins, watch this. He says, I'm able to remove one of the physical consequences of sin. And one of the physical consequences of sin, you've got to stay with me here, is sickness and disease and death. So that you'll know that these aren't simply words, I forgive you. I'm going to demonstrate for you in the physical world that I have authority over sin. I have, etern- I, have, I have authority over the eternal consequences of sin. I have the right granted to me by the Father to forgive sin. Because the Bible tells us that when sin entered the world, death and disease and all these things that we struggle with, the things that are so pressing to us and so urgent to us, came, came right in on the coattails of sin. <clears throat> and if, so if someone says, I forgive your sin, they better be able to demonstrate that they have the authority over those eternal consequences of sin. So here's what he says, verse, verse 11. He says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now, this is more like it. This is what they came for. This is why we're here. This is why we tore a hole in our, this stranger's roof. This is why we've already raised money to fix the roof. This is what we came for. We didn't come for forgiveness. We didn't feel the need to be forgiven. We came so that this guy could walk out of here. And Jesus says, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Do you know, do you know why Jesus healed it all in his ministry? It was to demonstrate that he had authority to heal spiritually. When you tell someone that your sins are forgiven, there's no immediate evidence of that. How do I know my sins are forgiven? How do I know I should now have peace? How do I know I should no longer fear death or what's on the other side? Just because you tell me that my sins are forgiven? How do I know that you have the authority to forgive my sins? He says, but because I have the ability and the authority to remove the eternal consequences of sin... Get up, walk, go home. That's why Jesus performed miracles. Because think about it, every one of the people that he healed eventually died. The healing was temporary. Because these bodies that we live in are cursed. These bodies are slowly, slowly dying. 
The curse won't be removed until the last days. But every time that Jesus healed somebody, it was a sign pointing to the fact that he came with authority to overcome sin and overcome the consequences of sin and the power of sin. And ultimately, the consequence of sin is death. And Jesus didn't heal people so that they could be well because they didn't stay well. They all died. You won't find any people. You won't run into somebody at the store after church today who's been walking around going, I don't know what's going on. I just can't die. I've been walking around here for like 2,000 years. Jesus healed me. Now I can't die. No, they all died. It was temporary evidence that he had the authority to solve man's ultimate problem and to meet man's ultimate need to remove sin and the eternal consequence of sin. So he said, I tell you, take up your mat, go home. And he took up his mat and went home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all, and this amazed everyone. (laughs) Up to this point, they're not very amazed. I mean, he just sealed his fate for eternity, and everybody's yawning. Jesus forgave his sins, and they're like, oh, where's the show going to start, you know? And he heals them temporarily, and he gives them his ability to walk, and suddenly everyone's amazed. Yeah, we can identify. And they praise God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And I think maybe, I don't know, but I think maybe Jesus was disappointed with that response because they celebrated the temporary and didn't even catch on to the eternal. You know why? Because they're like us. Because that's my list, that's your list. But the defining moment comes, the aha moment comes, a brand new perspective and all those things happens when we embrace this truth that my most pressing need is not health and wealth and companionship and fame. That's not my most pressing need as a human being. It's to know that I'm right with my Heavenly Father. Because those other things come and go. They're temporary health and wealth and companionship and fame. They're here and then they're gone. But my real issue is an eternal issue. My real issue is where will I spend eternity? My real, real issue is will I and can I be connected to a holy God in light of my sin? And Jesus came to this world to tear down that barrier and to say, yes, you can be eternally secure. You can be eternally connected to the Father. And I'm going to demonstrate that I have the authority to promise you that by healing people of the consequences of man's sin, I'm going to show you. And in doing so, I'm demonstrating the truth that I have the authority to say, through me, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Not based on anything you can do, but based on what I've done and will do on your behalf. You know why it's hard to keep this truth front and center? You know why it just kind of slips off the table sometime and why maybe you've never thought about it before? Here's why. Because we tend to disassociate the consequences of sin from sin. When we face the consequences of sin in one of these major areas of our life, either our health gets messed up or we get financially messed up or relationships get messed up, Whenever we face a consequence of sin in one of these areas, we have so disassociated the consequences of sin from sin itself that when one of those things goes wrong, we don't ever go, oh man, don't you hate it that sin's in the world? When your health goes bad or you have relationship problems, you aren't thinking, yep, more evidence of sin in the world. We live in a broken world. When you're messed up financially, you don't go around, well, the whole problem is the sin in this world. Thank you, Adam and Eve, you know. No, what do we do? We blame God. That's the first place we go. Where are you, God? What are you up to here? I don't get this. Aren't you paying attention? 
And I think God's going, well, I thought maybe you'd ask that question. That's why I explained it in the first two chapters of the book. The very first thing I covered in Genesis is why this world is so messed up. I covered that first because I knew you were going to ask. I knew you'd be getting mad at me. And I knew you were going to say, I don't even think I believe in you anymore. You know, God can't really be a good God with all the terrible things going on that he allows to happen. I can't find a good job and I don't have anybody to love me and nobody, you know, knows about me. And I think God's going, well, I knew you were going to blame me. So the first two chapters of the book, I covered that. Sin came into the world. And with sin, death in every area of our lives. And insecurities and fightings and war and disease and all these things that we want to get rid of. And the reason that's here is sin. And he says, the reason I sent you a savior, the reason I sent my son wasn't to make you more healthy, wasn't to make you richer, wasn't to give you somebody to hang out with or to make you famous. That stuff comes and that goes. I sent him here to deal with a primary need, to deal with what truly is most urgent. I sent him here to deal with sin. Because sin is the root issue of all these things. Instead of celebrating temporary solutions to temporary things, Oh, I finally got a job. The doctors were wrong. I got some recognition. Go ahead and celebrate. That's fine. But at the end of the day, when you see as I see, he would say, you fall on your face and say, thank you. Thank you, thank you that I've been forgiven forever. There'll be moments in my life where these things will be big issues. But thank you that my primary need, my most urgent pressing need was settled when you looked at me and said, you are forgiven. See, when we look at these big things in our lives, these big, pressing, urgent things, like, our, say, our health. You know that your health issues, bottom line, are sin issues? And Stay with me. I'm not talking about your sin. I'm not saying you brought your health issues on because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not what I'm saying. But when sin entered the world, our bodies started dying. We're born in this world under the curse of sin. And there... Our bodies are dying, and nobody avoids that. We had a funeral in this room yesterday. Nobody escapes that. Some of you, your financial issues are sin issues because maybe because of the decisions you've made, maybe because of the decisions someone else made, maybe because we're predisposed to selfishness and pride, and our priorities are out of whack. Do you know that all your relationship issues go back to some sort of sin issue? Maybe your sin, maybe someone else's sin, maybe original sin. Your insecurity issues, why don't people recognize me for who I am and what I've accomplished and what I can do? That all stems from sin. The reason we blame God is because we no longer associate our pressing needs and our urgent needs with the fact that there is sin in this world. But when you do, then the fact that you've been forgiven will be a point of celebration because it is your most urgent need. And what Jesus' audience didn't know that we know, because we're on the other side of it, was that as easy as it was for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, those same hands that he laid on that man and said, your sins are forgiven, now rise up and walk, those same hands in just a few months would be stretched out on a cross and nails would be driven through them and he would die to earn the authority to say to you and to say to me, your sins are forgiven, the price has been paid. In this life, you're going to have health issues. You'll have financial issues. You'll have relational issues. You'll maybe struggle with your personal identity and security. But let me give you some good news. 
The top of the list for you is forgiveness. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he'll give you what you need the most. For the rest of your life, the urgent needs will simply be a reminder of your ultimate need, this connection with your Heavenly Father. And the pressing needs of today will serve as a reminder of your primary need. And what you find yourself wanting most can serve as a reminder that you've been giving what you needed the most. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not even a religious person, uh, you're here because someone's taking you to lunch after church and you're still trying to figure this thing out, and this, you got questions and the whole, where's God and good things and bad things, but he, here's what I want you to understand today, okay? That Christianity offers a solution to this dilemma. Because here's what God would say to you. All your questions, all your issues, all your problems in the world, famine, disease, war, and poverty, the big things you know, God would say, I'm going I'm to leave that in your life. I'm going to leave that in your human experience. I'm going to leave that there because I hope that someday all of us will, some, maybe all that will drive you to come to me to meet your greatest need for forgiveness. I think sometimes God's willing to let us suffer a little bit or maybe a whole lot to do whatever it takes to bring us to that point where we recognize our ultimate need. Because all these other things are temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow, but forgiveness is eternal. If you're here today and you're a believer and you're thinking, well, he's right. I mean, Jesus is right. How, how, why do I allow these things, these pressing things to control my emotions and to control my life? And why do I forget to celebrate what's eternal? Here's the truth, and you can, you can choose to embrace it or ignore it. Your primary need is connection with the Father. And if we have that, we have something to celebrate every single day, even in the midst of all the other stuff. And ask the band to come to the stage and get ready to lead us in worship. There's a sense in which I believe your Heavenly Father kneels down in the middle of your health issues. I think He kneels down in the middle of your financial issues and your challenges. He kneels down in the middle of the mess of your relational issues. He kneels down in the middle of your personal insecurities. And sometimes He heals And sometimes he provides answers. And sometimes he shows up in this life like he did for the paralyzed man in Mark 2. But every single time we can live with the confidence that when he looks at our pressing urgent needs and our requests and our hurts and our sorrows, he says, all that may be true, but here's the good news, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven and your primary need has been taken care of and let all these temporary things that come in and out of our life be a constant reminder that I've given you what you need the most. I've given you freely what you needed at the deepest level. You're forgiven. And if we embrace that truth and if we begin to see life the way God sees it, then all of our pressing needs will simply be a reminder, be a reminder that our primary need has been met in Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're a God who loves us, that you're a God who hears us, that you're a God who empathizes and feels with us. And even in those times when we question whether you're even present, we doubt that you see what we think is so obvious. We're so grateful that you see, you see in a way that we haven't even begun to see. You see it for what it is. You see the big picture. You see from an eternal perspective. Thank you that you have come to us to meet our primary need. To give us forgiveness of sin. 
to address the eternal consequence of our sin, which is separation from you. And you've dealt with that. You've taken down that barrier. You've provided a way for us to connect with you now and throughout eternity. And we're grateful for that. Thank you that we can live in this forgiveness. May we be aware of the price that's been paid so that we can have a relationship with you and know what it is to be connected with our Creator and Heavenly Father. There's someone in this room this morning that's never experienced and lived the forgiveness of sin, the connection with their Heavenly Father. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just uh, speak into their heart and life today. This might be their defining moment. They take a step towards you. We're grateful. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.